Let's pray once more. In the beginning, God said, let there be light. Father, from the beginning, your word has always brought life. It has accomplished what you intended to accomplish. So this morning, God, I'm going to speak, but my words have no such power. Um, There's nothing that I can say that can affect anything. I say, come here, and we stay seated. But God, you say, live, and we live. You say, be revived, and we are revived. You say, come, and we come. You say, believe, and we believe. You say, repent, and we repent. So, Lord, may you be at work in your word, through your word this morning, as we proclaim this passage. May it not just merely be my words, but may your words be in and through my words and bring about life. I'm a jar of clay, an earthen vessel, so that the surpassing power, if anything good happens, belongs to you and to you alone. It will not be a result of personality or preparation or sermon outline or homiletical or exegetical ability. No life comes from any of those things. The only life that comes, comes from your spirit, taking your word and applying it for your glory to the hearts of your people. And we ask that you would do that in these moments together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when you, when you think about your life, how do, you, how do you view it on the whole? Do you view it as a destination or as preparation? In other words, if our time here on earth is viewed as a destination, as all that there is, then this world really is our true home, and it makes perfect sense that we would be devastated if anything bad happens during our time in this, on this earth. We don't get what we want. But if this world and the time in it is preparation, then it's merely a temporary stopping place on the journey to our heavenly home. And that puts an entirely different perspective on our lives, both our present sufferings and our present joys. Imagine for a moment with me that you're caught in a snowstorm out in somewhere between here and Bowling Green, and there's not a lot of exits here between here and Bowling Green. So imagine you, you're able, you're on the nature and you encounter a snowstorm, but you are at one of those exits that has a, a cheap motel nearby. And while you're traveling, you're forced to take refuge in that cheap hotel, and you don't really complain, you know, about the color scheme of the room or the shower curtain that hasn't been changed in 12 decades or the drapes that aren't particularly your style because you've escaped a snowstorm and you're going home tomorrow. You remember that you're only going to be there for a night, maybe two at the most. You can put up with almost anything for a couple of nights knowing that after that experience is over, you'll be able to go home and laugh about it. But alternatively, if you're traveling on business and you're given an upgraded suite in a luxurious hotel, then you can, you can enjoy that for a night or two without being fooled into thinking that the wonderful amenities are now your permanent right. Now you're going to go home and since you got that kind of treatment and paid for it at that hotel, that's how the rest of your family should treat you back home. Marble bathrooms, plush robes, daily maid service, those might all be lovely, but they're only temporary. So too, then this world is not our home. It's a temporary stopping place on our greater journey. And our joys here should give us reason 
to be thankful to God from whom all blessings flow, but they're not what are ultimate or what define us. And in the same way, our sufferings and disappointments may bring tears to our eyes and sorrow to our hearts here, but remember, they only last for a night. Joy comes in the morning. My point is, is that life is a mixture of good and bad news. And where we place our ultimate hope, how we view this life, whether it's destination or preparation, makes all the difference. We've seen so far in the story of Joseph that life is, in fact, a mixture of good and bad, bad news, right? Think back at Genesis 37, Joseph's dreams. Good news for Joseph, bad news for his brothers. Or think about the time where Joseph was in prison or his exaltation in Potiphar's house. Good news, he got promoted. Bad news, you're going to jail. Or consider while he's in jail with the cupbearer and the baker, and they receive dreams. Good news for the cupbearer, bad news for the baker. Pharaoh's dreams, remember those dreams that he had? Seven years of plenty followed by seven years of famine. Life's a mixture of good news and bad news. And chapter 47 is just that study contrast. We see it again. Good news for Jacob and his family, bad news for the Egyptians. Jacob moves from what he defines in the chapter as evil days to more prosperous days. He's going to live the last 17 years of his life the way he lived another 17-year period of his life with his son Joseph by his side. For 17 years, he had his son Joseph. And for the last 17 years of his life, he will have his son Joseph. But in the middle of all that was a lot of trouble and a lot of difficulty. So three points this morning. Here's the first one. Life can change for the better. Life can change for the better. We see that in this passage, especially the first 12 verses, as the upward prosperity of Israel is described. I mean, Jacob summarizes his life so far in verse 9. We'll read that together. Jacob says to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. Well, that's his assessment up to this point, but it's getting ready to get significantly better. And can't we relate to that sometimes? When we think about our lives, we can just focus on all the bad that's happened, but rather it's been marked by significant blessing as well. Think about all the good that has also happened to Jacob, who's only partly right. Think about this. Here's some good news about how life can get better. Sins can be forgiven. These brothers blew it. And they deserved to be sentenced to death for what they did. And yet, they had their sins forgiven. They survived a famine that should have wiped them out. And had they not sinned against their brother and sold him into Egypt, they would have died. And they didn't merely receive enough grain to stay alive. They were actually moved to the promised land, so to speak, to Egypt. Not the literal promised land, but definitely a better land to be in than Canaan was at that point. So sins can be forgiven. They survived a famine. Also, families can be reunited and reconciled. That's a better life. Who wants to live with family dysfunction and discord? That's some of the stuff that breaks our heart the most in this life. And yet we see here 
that this family was reunited. They didn't merely get their brother Simeon back and return Benjamin safely, but Joseph was alive. Jacob got Simeon back, he got Benjamin back safely, and he got the son he thought was dead back. And not only was he back, he was ruling in Egypt for his blessing. Life can get better. Also, injustices can get turned around. Things, terrible things that happen to people that they don't deserve can come out for glorious blessing and prosperity. Think about the small gifts that Jacob sent to Pharaoh. You know, when they were going back, taking Benjamin with them, take some gifts. Make sure you know them. Well, what kind of gifts did Pharaoh provide in the moving service that got them out of Canaan and brought them into Egypt? I would say Pharaoh's gifts were a whole lot better than Jacob's little gifts. Life can get much, much better. Good things can happen to God's people who trust him and patiently wait on him and persevere under trial. Good things can happen to God's people. And in fact, they get the best of the land. We see that show up again and again. Look at chapter 45, verse 18. And take your father and your households and come to me and I will give you the best of the land. Joseph says to his brothers, I will give you the best of the land. Then again in verse 47, or chapter 47, the one that we're in this week, chapter 47, verse 6. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. Then verses 11 and 12. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramesses, as Pharaoh had commanded. And Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with food, according to the number of their dependents. Brothers and sisters, life can change for the better. Life can change for the better. And more importantly, in terms of the whole story of the Bible, we get this word in verse 27 and 28. Would you look at those verses? Thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt and in the land of Goshen, and they gained possessions in it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. His life is extended, but more importantly, the purpose of God is accomplished. Because for the first time in the book of Genesis, we are, we, are, we are told that the be fruitful and multiply command that he gave us back in Genesis chapter 1 is being fulfilled. See, previous to this, God has either commanded people to be fruitful and multiply, like Genesis 1 or post-flood with Noah, be fruitful and multiply, or he's promised that it will be so. But here, he says it is so. Did you see that verb tense there? They were fruitful and multiplied greatly. See, under Joseph's leadership, Abraham's seed is beginning to sprout and flourish. God's purpose and promise are beginning to be accomplished. So, my point is, is life can get better. Life can change for the better. And all of this is a wonderful picture of something, brothers and sisters of how God deals with us. Listen, when we come to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we don't just get what we deserve. 
we get far more than we ever could have imagined. Our lives change significantly for the better. How so, Pastor Mark? Well, let me give you a few. We are forgiven for all of our sins and transgressions. We are adopted into God's family as sons and daughters. We are made co-heirs with Jesus Christ of a glorious future eternal inheritance. And thus we are made more than conquerors in this life and in death. Even here on earth, we sometimes experience the rich provision of God in such a way that we say, along with the psalmist in Psalm 16, the lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. We have a great deal for which to be thankful. Yet our hearts are often blind to God's mercy and grace. We moan, we complain about anything that's wrong with our lives instead of celebrating and being thankful for all the ways that God has changed our lives for the better. I know I certainly can fall into that. I take for granted the many rich blessings that God has given me, and I fixate on any aspect of my life that isn't the way I'd like it to be. At work, we can ignore everything we love about where God has placed us and complain about relatively few negative elements. At home, we can forget all the great aspects of our life with our wife and children and grumble in our hearts about the little things they do that bother us. We can regularly forget all of the ways in which God has placed us in a pleasant place and murmur instead of thinking about all the things he has provided for us. Life can change for the better. Number two, life can change for the worse. Life can change for the worse. You know, if you're Jacob's family in this chapter, you're liking life. If you're Egypt's, if you're Egyptians, you're hating life. One family, Jacob's family, has moved from adversity to prosperity. Egyptians have moved from prosperity to adversity. Life can change for the worse. How do we see this in the downward spiral of Egypt in this chapter? Well, it's in verses 13 through 26. I'm not going to read them again, but I'll summarize the progressive downturn that Egypt experiences in this chapter. First of all, they need grain. It's, It's desperate times in the famine. This is the height of the famine's seven-year intensity. And they have gone to having to now spend their money to get what they need. Look at verses 13 and 14. Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. And the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money, verse 14, that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they brought. And he brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So they're having to give large sums of money to stay alive. And then when they run out of money, according to verses 15 and 17, they start selling off their livestock to get grain. These are desperate. You're selling your only assets, except for their land. And then they had to sell that off in verses 18 and 19. The famine gets so bad, not only are they parting with their money, not only are they parting with their livestock, but they're having to part with their land. They're having to sell off the last assets that they have. And then the downturn reaches its pinnacle and that they have to sell themselves in verses 21 through 26 into servitude. 
as Egyptian slaves because they can't afford it anymore. And so they move from money to livestock to land to servitude all in a matter of a few years because of how life can change for the worse. You know, this reminds us that life is so fragile. They have no control over this famine. You know, we don't know what a day will bring forth. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. We don't know what's going to happen next five minutes. We don't know what's going to happen right now. Our lives are so fragile. And this is why Jesus told us when he admonished his disciples in Luke chapter 10, that when we're at the height of success and influence, we need to be careful. We don't need to be rejoicing in that. If you're young and strong, you need to be careful. If you're old and healthy, you need to be careful. You don't control your life. God does. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 10. When the disciples come back after this great missionary trip, I mean, they saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. They were seeing people converted and healed. They were preaching the gospel. They were experiencing revival like you'd never believe. They come back and they said to Jesus with joy, Luke says, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in our name. And Jesus said, do not rejoice in this. Do not be happy about this. We're not to be happy about the things that God does through us. Well, it's not that we're not to praise God for those things. But see, what's happening is these disciples are settling too much joy in what is fleeting. They're not anchoring their hope and joy in what's eternal. He, I imagine him sitting around the campfire, so to speak, with the disciples and him talking about the eternal kingdom and the disciples, ah! Jesus, when's bedtime? And then they get in on a little bit of the action and they're super pumped. They came off, they got the mission trip high, you know, that Christianity that lasts about two weeks after you get off the mission trip and then you go back into living for the world like you did before. He said, wait, hold on. Yeah, you guys have gone. You've done some great things, and you were pretty bored when I was talking about eternity. But listen, don't rejoice in this. This is not going to last. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. See, when Jesus' disciples brought news of their extraordinary strength and influence and success, his response was, quit being happy. Quit rejoicing. When God gives us success for a time, when he chooses to put the wind at our backs, by all means, enjoy it. But you mustn't hang your hat on it. As though earthly success in all of its forms comes to us as a gift from God and it's to be received with thanksgiving, but it's fleeting. Our Lord is telling us not to allow appetizers to replace the feast. Don't allow work for God to replace relationship with God. Blessings from God to replace the person of God. This is why people go to hell. Matthew chapter 7. They did all kinds of things for Jesus. Serving people and loving people. And he said, but you didn't love me. You had no relationship with me. You're just living off the kingdom buzz. So don't settle for appetizers. Don't allow it to replace the feast. 
Don't allow a single apple to replace the orchard. Don't allow a road sign to replace the destination to which that road sign points. That's Jesus' point. Do not rejoice in this, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Life can change so quickly. Life can change for the worst. You know, just as Joseph's family had no chance, no chance of gaining welcome with Pharaoh apart from the intervention of Joseph, so we have no chance of gaining welcome with God apart from the intervention of Jesus Christ. We need Jesus on our side. Like Joseph in the beginning of this chapter is speaking up on behalf of Jacob's family to gain an audience with Pharaoh who would intervene to save them so our Lord Jesus speaks up as our advocate, mediator, and intercessor. And just as sure, how did these Egyptians respond when life got worse, when life got bad? They ran to Joseph. They ran to the one man who could do something about their plight. And I'm telling you here this morning, friends, if any of you are here this morning and you have not had life beat you up to the point where you felt out of control enough and subject to all the fleeting vanity and difficulty of life to drive you to Jesus, I want to invite you to him this morning. Just as sure as the Egyptians understood that they were ruined and lost without Joseph's intervention, so our lives are ruined and lost apart from the intervention of Jesus. It is just as foolish for some of you here today to ignore Jesus as Lord and Savior as the Egyptians would have been to ignore Joseph in the time of famine. I mean, think about it. There you are getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier, and your kids' bellies are getting bloated. And somebody says, wait, there's a man in Egypt that can give us grain and keep us safe. And you're like, yeah, I, I've heard about him, but I don't want anything to do with that. Are you crazy? What are you going to do? I'm going to find a way to feed myself and my family. There's no food. I'm, I'm not going. I'd rather die. That's how some people respond to Jesus. It's absolutely foolish for people to sit who have been subject to the worst things in life and hear a message of a kind and benevolent and loving and tender Savior who will provide everything that you need and say, you know what, I know that's for some people. They're really fond of Jesus and they believe in him, but I don't want anything to do with him. I'm not going to have that man rule over me. Because that's what had to happen, right? I mean, you are crazier than the Egyptians who thought they were going to feed themselves in a time of famine. It says, I mean, their life is ruined, their life is undone, and they can't do anything about it. All they can do is flee to someone who can help them in their desperation. And that's the way we are before God. Until we feel that our lives are ruined, undone, and we can't do anything about it, we can't forgive ourselves, we can't obtain eternal life, we're helpless. Until we admit that, we will never flee to Christ. But here's the good news. If you're here this morning and you haven't fled to Christ, I encourage you, he saves all kinds of people. 
all kinds of people. He saves bad people who know it, and he saves good people who are worse because they don't. He saves all kinds of people, and you're no exception. Say to him, as the Egyptians did to Joseph, say to him right now in your seat, Jesus, I don't have anything to offer you, but all that I have I give to you. And he'll receive it. That's it. And then when you go to him for grain and you give it all up, here's the, here's the, here's the trade-off. You belong to him now. You're his. He just bought you with a price. But he's a way better master than even Joseph would have been to those who sold themselves into his servitude or in servitude to him. There's no such thing as bowing the knee to Jesus without receiving him as Lord. We can't have him as Savior and not have him as Lord. That's clear here in this story. You're not getting Joseph's provision unless you give yourself to Joseph. And that's the way it is with our Lord Jesus. So we can have the best news when life gets the worst, that we don't have to lose hope because there is a man who has grain and he will provide it for us. So that's our first two points. Number one, life can change for the better. We see that with Jacob's family. But also life can change for the worst. We see that with the people of Egypt. Now number three and finally, our ultimate hope isn't in life getting better or worse. Our ultimate hope cannot and must not be in this life getting better or worse. Where do I get that from? the end of the chapter, all right? Jacob's family has been moved out of Canaan into Egypt. The Egyptians have suffered the worst parts of the famine. Life's going down for them. You might think, time to retire, get cozy. I mean, enjoy it. What does Jacob say? Look at verse 29. And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, so he's been living 17 years at this point, pretty close to it. I mean, he's getting, this is the 17 years that have passed in this land, and he's getting close to it, so maybe 15, 16, 17 years here. And he called his son Joseph and said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. So here's what he's asking Joseph to do. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. He answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And he swore to him. And then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, he's not dead yet. He's going to bless some people for a couple of chapters. But Jacob wants the symbolism of his burial in the land of Canaan, in the land of his fathers, to stand as a testimony to his descendants, Joseph and his grandchildren, his great-grandchildren, everyone that's going to come after him. He wants it to stand as a testimony that his hope is not in Egypt. His hope is beyond this life. His ultimate hope is not anchored in anything this life can give or this life can take away. It's anchored in the promises of God beyond this life. And that for them, that meant the land of Canaan, the land of promise. His great concern when he speaks to his son Joseph is that is focused on the promise of God given to his grandfather Abraham, that they would never 
ever forget. Listen, Jacob knows this, and we surely know this as well. Life-changing for the better and life-changing for the worse is not the point because this life is preparation, not destination. Prosperity is unsatisfying. It's fleeting. It cannot stave off death. We can't take anything with us. There's no U-Hauls behind the hearse. 1 Timothy 6, 7, For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of the world. Job said it, Naked I came into the, wor- into the world, naked will I depart. One of the great temptations, brothers and sisters, and I feel it as a temptation too, in preaching and studying the Bible, is to make it all about how it helps us in this life. That my whole goal as a pastor is to get you comfy to heaven. I can't make any of those promises. It'd be a betrayal of my Lord to do so. I can't promise you, like so many false teachers will, that if you'll sow a seed, honor God's man, and do right, that God will abundantly bless your life. Hogwash. We can't come to the Bible merely, that's an important word, we can't come to the Bible merely and ask, well, what does it teach me about marriage and how to have a better marriage? And what does it teach me about how to train my children? And how does it teach me about being a good church member and a good pastor? And what does it teach me about being single? And how does it teach me about my finances? Look, there's nothing wrong with that. The Bible has all kinds of things to say about all of those things. But while the Bible does equip us for every good work in this life, The Bible's main point is to give us promises for beyond this life. The grand prize of the Bible is not how it tells us to live here, but what it promises us there. The focal point of our hope must not be on what God will do in this world, but what he won't do in this world, but reserves for the next world. So set your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's the way the Bible talks. Not on the hope of getting a husband or a wife to behave just the way you want them to. Not on the hope of all your kids turning out perfectly. Not on the hope of the marriage turning around. Not on the hope of getting out of debt or when the church music finally sounds like the way I want it to or when the Supreme Court finally gets the right people on it. Or finally landing the right job that fits my gifts perfectly and adequately compensates me for the minimum amount of labor. Or the precise amount I need in my 401k to retire early so I can squeeze in as much of heaven here as I possibly can. The finances might always be tight. The 401k may be pretty low. But we are to focus our hope exclusively on the life and the age to come. The disease might not get better. The marriage may not be healed. The finances might always be tight. God might not sign off on the script we've written for our kids' lives. But we will be with the Lord forever. And he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. And it will all be worth it. There will be no sorrow or death or suffering or trial because the former things will have passed away and all things will have been made new. 
And that's worth it to me. So we must be careful, brothers and sisters, because we might get the perfect promotion. And we might have the Facebook family. And we might live into our 90s with no major health problems. But this has the potential to only increase the temptation to hope in this life. There is a test, two tests to pass. The test of adversity and the test of prosperity. And they're both hard. They're both hard to pass. The test of adversity has built within it the ability to drive us to God. The test of prosperity has none of that. It gets you to rest in yourself. Which is a terrible place to be. Which is the more difficult test to pass biblically? Our job is to view ourselves as the New Testament calls us to view ourselves with a pilgrim mindset. Sojourners and aliens. Strangers. Setting our hope on the city that has foundations whose builder and maker is God. Is that the center of your discipleship? Is your hope in the fulfillment of God's plan for his people? Are you wrapped up or are you wrapped up in, in the smaller things that, yes, are precious, that, yes, are gifts from God, that, yes, should be celebrated and received with thanksgiving, but must not be the place where we place our ultimate hope? For those of us who are pilgrims, Jacob sets a wonderful example for us, doesn't he? This old man who is by no means a perfect man, but he gets it right at the end. He gets it right at the end. His life has been full of trouble. He has had things. That, there were many, many of those troubles were self-inflicted. They were things he brought on his own self because he was a deceiver from the womb. He was a wicked man who chose his will over God's will quite a bit in his life. But at the end, he shows himself a pilgrim wandering in a strange land whose sight is set on the city with foundations and whose hope is in the promise of God and nothing else. And if our sights are off and our hope is off, we are just not pilgrims. We're not just, we're not just thinking of Jacob here. We see ourselves through him. And we should pray, God, enable me to have that perspective on life. Enable me to live as a pilgrim. To be thankful, yes, for all the blessings and kindnesses that you give and to realize that all the trials that come when life gets better and when life gets worse are all meant to help me set my hope on that which life cannot give and death cannot take away. So it's by viewing ourselves as a sojourner, as a temporary resident, as an exile, as an alien that helps us here. Notice he says that repeatedly in this chapter. Verse 4, Jacob's own testimony, not just at the end of his life, but this is the testimony of others as well. Look at what Joseph says to Pharaoh in verse 4. They said to Pharaoh, we have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks. We have come to sojourn in the land. I mean, we, didn't, we didn't come to live in the land, although that's true. But their mindset is we're temporary here. Even though they're not going to live to see another land on this earth. It's going to be 400 years there in Egypt. They're, none of them are all going to die in Egypt. But they view it as sojourning. 
because they're going to a heavenly country. And then we see in verse 9 as well, and Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. So these have been the days of my temporary residence in this life. That's the way he describes his life. What if we thought of it that way? What if we, we said, my sojourning, my, my, I'm a sojourner, I'm an exile. This is the, of the essence of faith. I close with these verses from Hebrews chapter 11. These all died in faith, who would include Joseph and Jacob and others. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. This is the way faith talks. Verse 14, for people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For God has prepared for them the city. This is how you get God to be proud of you. You want God to be proud of you? Want God to be not ashamed to be your God? I certainly want that. Desire his country more than this country. Desire heaven more than earth. Desire the blessings to come more than the blessings of now. Desire him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way in which you speak to us from it and remind us and recalibrate us to eternity. Every Lord's Day is that kind of gift to us where we come in here with just the mire and muck of living in this fallen world all over us and your word washes over us and tells us it's going to be okay. There's a life to come where neither moth or rust destroy and where thieves don't break in and steal. And we thank you for that hope that we have. And we thank you that that hope is secure. Just as Jacob asked Joseph, swear to me that you will take my bones and put them in Canaan. We have a greater, greater promise and a guarantee of hope than that. We, we stare back at an empty tomb where a, where a God-man once was laid. And that guarantee says, there's life on the other side. Don't put all your hope here. Set your hope fully on the grace to be revealed when I return again. Help us to do that. We want you to not be ashamed to be called our God. We want to live and die as those of faith who were sojourners and exiles and saw this life as temporary and who looked to a better country, a heavenly one. Give us grace. Help us to sing of that now and tune our hearts to the language and the desires of heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.